Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. John Worth, I'm here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Hope everyone is doing okay wherever you are. Our guest today, Dr. Brian Hainline. He is the Chief Medical Officer for the NCAA. That's college sports for our uh, international audience. He is also the Chief Medical Officer for the U.S. Open and the USTA, uh, and has been since the early 90s. He is also a former college tennis player. So, Today's discussion is a lot about what it will take for sports to come back, what we make of this closed door scenario, and then we talk specifically tennis, what are the unique challenges tennis faces, and whether the 2020 U.S. Open can happen, and if so, under what circumstances. So I thought after a lot of uh, speculation from uh, lay people, it was time we consulted someone who had real expertise. So here, and he does a great job, is Dr. Brian Hainline. I've seen you quoted a number of times, and I feel like everyone has become an instant expert on sports science and, uh, and virology these days, but I figured we'd talk to a real expert. And no. let's, I don't know, let's, let's just start generally. I mean, what, uh, what are you seeing out there, and what's going to be the biggest challenge for sports to restart? I think the uh, two biggest challenges are um, really having surveillance that's firmly in place and, uh, and really, really good testing. So you, you can't imagine, and it, it, you know, re-socializing in our country, and you can't imagine re-socializing in sport if you don't have both of those. Because, you know, once we start opening up, we're no longer saying, well, we're just trying to flatten the curve, or, or we're trying to really make certain our healthcare systems are not overwhelmed. And so New York City, which is a great example of that, the, the healthcare systems were at 90% of the hospitals were devoted to taking care of patients who had COVID and were in respiratory failure. We're now opening up, doing procedures, elective procedures. And so going forward, if this is gonna work, you have to be able to test large segments of society and especially in sport, and you have to do contact tracing and do what's right when there's a positive. So it really does fundamentally rest on those two principles. And you're, just to be clear, you're talking about testing, testing, and not just the temperature checks. That's correct. And, and it's two types of testing, you know, the, it, and there have been, you know, even good advances and even in, in the last week. So uh, the rapid diagnostic testing shifting to what we may call point of care testing, where you can even have uh, your, your, your own kit. And, and, and that's to, uh, that's going to be evolving in, in, in two ways. One is, um, looking for the virus particles, so the PCR test to, to see if you really are actively um, infectious. And even the serology testing, if it rolls out properly and we really get good at it, there's two ways to look at serology. One is to see if you have immunity, but also when you first are infected with a virus, your immune system kicks in right away. It's what's called IgM. 
And that may even evolve as a, as a screening tool for, for seeing if someone has acute effect infection. So I think both are gonna really advance in the next month and, and then there are gonna be strategies for how to work with teams with that. And you think this testing is available and sufficient? I mean, I, I don't know if you saw the, the UFC card that they held uh, Saturday night in Florida. They, they, they went through, I think it was 1200 tests for one sporting event and people, some eyebrows were raised over that. Do you, do you think we have enough tests to pull this off? I think we're going to get there. So, so we had a, a, a meeting, we meaning the chief medical officers of sport. Um, so I was representing amateur sports, the NCAA, and then you had the chief medical officers of the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, NHL, and we were all meeting with Dr. Burtz's office in the White House. And, and we emphasized, we said, we can't do this if we don't have adequate tests. And so, you know, the White House responses, the usual response, we're, we're increasing them uh, substantially. But I think what's happening, and I've, I've seen this happen, is that at, at least at university levels, they're either working with a hospital or university lab so they can take care of their whole campus. But the private companies have, have really been uh, revving up as well. And you know that's challenging and on, on the one hand, and you wanna make certain that you aren't testing for one segment of society while the rest of the state is still prioritizing tests and they don't have enough. So, but I, I, I think the, the way the private companies and, and, and even with, you know, I just saw another FDA approval for a serology test come in uh, yesterday. So um, it is starting to substantially increase where I think we're gonna be moving into a different testing paradigm. We, we keep talking about the possibility of sports returning, but I wonder how granular you get. To what extent do you see distinctions between sports and the benchmark for football is going to be much different than the benchmark for golf. No, absolutely. So, um, so, so, you know, aside from the event in Florida this past weekend, so the PGA tour will be hosting event in, 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 in Texas the first weekend of June. And, um, and they have, you know, a really cool, you know, without getting into too much of the details, but, you know, you essentially have to create what's called an inner bubble. And then you have outer bubbles after that. And the inner bubble is who are the, really going to be around the athletes. So it's the athletes, the, the core uh, uh, athletics staff personnel, the coaches, and you have to make sure that they're sort of walled off and, and, and really well protected. I mean, in these first um, early, early events like that, you know, when we look at the NCAA and, and the fall sports, so it ranges from cross country to uh, volleyball and soccer and, and, and field hockey. And then of course there's, there's football. And, and so it's a little easier to imagine pulling off cross country than, than it is uh, to, to pull off football. Um, but even a cross country meet, the logistics of it are not straightforward. And, um, you know, when you're starting off a cross country event, you're, you're pretty close to a lot of people at the end. You're pretty close when you're trying to pass someone, you know, it's, it's uh, the elbows are flying. And, and so you have to make sure that's done right too. And, and so we are actually getting at a very granular level. We're, at, at the NCAA, we, we have these committees that are our staff and membership committees working in conjunction with other, and we're developing basically all of the what-if scenarios that we can think of. And the other thing is we're building off of this core principles of resocialization document that we put together, and we'll be getting very granular in terms of general guidance for what needs to happen in a locker room, what needs to happen in in the gym, what needs to happen, you know, for showers and, 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 you know, the whole old idea of you just kind of show up in the training room, it was actually sort of a favorite place for athletes to hang out. I mean, that's going to be by appointment. So it's really going to be staggered. And I think it'll be easy in the first couple of phases, but the tricky part is going to be once you start having contact. What, what does need, to, I mean, I'm thinking about tennis, what, where you've got, you know, uh, 128 singles draw from, 50 countries, what, what does need to happen in the locker room? Well, so if you think of tennis, if you think of something like the U.S. Open, um, you, you would have to really make certain that when people are in the locker room, you have a staged presence. In other words, you can't just come into the locker room when you want. So it really all has to be orchestrated. And, and so that, uh, you know, if, if you if you've ever been in the U.S. Open locker room, you know, there's their lockers right next to each other, right above each other. And um, the, the training tables are, are one after the other. The athletic trainer is going from one person to the next and, you know, doing infectious disease control. But that would be much different. That would, 
you, you, would, you would have to control the timing, the inflow, the outflow, and, and the, the sanitization procedures have to be exceptional. What else are you looking at sport to sport? I mean, it seems like indoor-outdoor would be an obvious distinction and a contact sport, even, you know, we just had UFC, so you don't get much more contact than that. But what else are you looking for when you're determining sport by sport? So if, if you're um, thinking about, say, football, um, if you're uh, going to be rolling that out, so there's, there's going to be protocols. I think one protocol for the inner circle, and you have to define the inner circle at, at the collegiate level too, you know, there, there really is a, a code of honor and you can take the compliance even beyond that um, and where everyone's going to have sort of a symptom checklist, if you will, and a temperature. And if you have anything that's positive on that checklist or you have a temperature, you just don't show up. So that's a general screen. It's certainly not foolproof, especially in college age uh, uh, students. You know, as we advance in any of the sports, the fall sports or even basketball for their, their, their practice in the summer as, as that gets defined, when people show up, you wanna test them and um, they should all be tested. And that, those are the protocols that even schools are, are, are working on for all of their students. And then you wanna have a protocol for regular testing and that's still being worked out in the modeling. How often uh, do you need to test? So as a minimum, when we're looking at all of the sports as you're going from phase one to phase two, you test before you move to phase two. And, and then the question is when you have a positive test, what do you do? And that has to be worked out with the local um, uh, health officials as well. And this is where they have to have the capacity for contact tracing. And I'm sure there are going to be imaginative apps in the next uh, couple of months that are going to help with that too. Um, but then the question is, you know, do you quarantine everyone for two weeks who was in close contact? Or is there another paradigm where you can do testing on days one, three, and five, and you do just a five-day quarantine? Um, and, and those are the models that are still being worked out. Then in football, let's take the, 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 the you know, the most contact collision sport in the fall there is. Um, you would imagine a protocol of something like at least once weekly testing, but then before a game, the only players that play in the game and the only people who are really in close contact, they test negative. So it ends up being resource dependent. Yeah, it's a lot of tests, yeah. And um, you know, you can, you can do the math and you, you, you end up, you know, it, it depends on how, how much, it, you could easily be a $1,000 a player when you, when, you, when you do the math, could be more. Now that's the cost of an old Vicus helmet, <laughs> um, you know, and, and I don't think we need to have four or five helmets per player, um, but, but it, 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 it's a cost. And, and, and the question is who, who, who is going to take care of that cost? Cause it's, you know, you could think about a society where you believe sports important, school's important. Well, then that's a, that's sort of a federal expense, but that doesn't happen in our country. And I don't think the states have the money for that, but you know, a lot of schools don't either. And, and the NCAA, as you know, took a, 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 a big hit in its budget too. So um, it's, it's problematic. Well, I, how, what, I mean, when you make these assessments, how do you divorce the finances or do, or do you divorce the finances? I mean, it, you know, you're right. Co college sports are going to look radically different if there's football this fall or not. The USTA's budget is going to look radically different if there's a U.S. Open or not. How do you sort of consider the finances? Well, I, it's, it's, it's a big part of it. And so you have to first make the core decision and say, well, what's the one thing that can't be sacrificed? And that's health and safety. Um, and, then you, and then you build out from there. You, you know, you've seen, you know, even at the Pac-12, their announcement that, that they may just be playing conference-only football games this year. And, and I think a lot of schools are looking very closely at travel. We haven't come out with travel guidelines yet. I think it's still too early because, you know, uh, you, you, you look at what's happening around the world. So, I mean, I got a uh, kind of a firsthand uh, look at this. So my, my wife's father uh, uh, died uh, suddenly last week. So she flew to France and it was um, really eerie to be in Kennedy Airport. I wasn't allowed in, but it was like a ghost town. But when she came back, when she arrived um, Sunday night, they weren't allowed off the jet bridge unless they had a screening, which included a temperature check. And for those that screened, you know, uh, positive, they were directed to a different part of the airport. And, um, you know, you look at uh, Emirates Airline, they actually do a, um, 
a point of care test before you're allowed to fly. So you think of that, and then you think about an event like the U.S. Open where you have, uh, uh, you, you know, a lot of international players. You know, do we work with one airline that we know they're going to be actually doing the screening? It's a, it's, it's a valid screen. And, and um, so, you know, the people on that flight have just tested negative. So, you, you know, that's the thing with testing. You know, at that moment that you're negative, you could be positive the next day. But um, so I think it's, it's going through scenarios like that. But certainly in this country, we're not at that level of sophistication for travel. And I think a lot of schools are going to be looking at more local travel. We're talking about athletes. I mean, what do you think of this this no fan scenario that we keep uh, hearing about? Well, I think you have to plan first on a no fan scenario, because if you you, you know again you're thinking uh, about the inner bubble, and um, how do you protect the inner bubble, and can you even get that right? And if you can get that right, and then you know let's take a wide open space like. Um, Flushing Meadows, Corona Park, and, and, and where the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center is, you could maybe imagine if you can get everything right for the inner circle, and then, you know, there's an outer circle of people who need to be there to run the tournament, then could you add fans on top of that? It, it's a possibility. You know, you look at some of the creative solutions like the Miami Dolphins and the diagram they put together for an imagined um, a football uh, game where you have like seats of four that are stacked together, but then they're separated. And, um, you know, but it, it's tricky because do you then test everyone? Do you do a screen? And that's what is not so well worked out. So I, I think we first have to get the no fan scenario down um, and then, and then, and then build on that. Um, and even with no fan, the, 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 you, you know, and I think, you know, John, we have to ask even philosophically, why are we doing this? I mean, so, why is sport so important? And, um, you know, why don't we just wait? But, you know, if you look at the reality, I mean, so we don't want to open up too soon, but we're going to be dealing with this in the summer of 2021. We may be dealing with this in 2022. I mean, we just don't know, you know, we can put our hopes on a vaccine, but we don't have a vaccine for the, the you know, the, the closest relative of of this particular coronavirus, and that's you know the the, the SARS coronavirus one. I mean, so we don't have a vaccine for SARS, for MERS, for HIV/AIDS, and so maybe we will, maybe we won't. But meanwhile, you know, society is at risk of dying. You know, there there are really broad public health implications of, of massive unemployment and everything else. And where does sport fit in? I mean, sport is just I you, you know so culturally essential to what society is. It's an expression of who we are as homo sapiens from an evolutionary point of view. And, and I think it, it actually provides sort of a physical manifestation of hope. And, you know, when we have hope, it actually changes who we are in terms of our, our own health, our mental health, our physical health. So, so I think there is a reason for trying to get this out and, 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 and to do it right. Um, I don't know how I went off on that philosophical. No, I, I think that's a good point because I think people are seeing this as a, as an economic proposition, but I think you, you look at the role sports plays in a cultural fabric, a university, you know, tableau, and that ought to be a consideration perhaps, not at the expense of health and safety, but more than, than, than balance sheets. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. What are some of the other creative approaches you I mean I, I you know the, the UFC was going to buy an island and we heard about you know, NBA playoff games on cruise ships what are, what are some of the other creative solutions you've uh, you've encountered 
You know, we have heard or I've heard of people, you know, saying, well, let's just have all all the players stay on a cruise ship or in one city. But, you know, it's um, those are the creative solutions for professional sports are very different and and really can't be applied to collegiate sport. Um, You know, and, and especially when we're just, you know, I mean, look at what was just released from the Board of Governors was a recommendation for the NCAA membership to get name, image, and likeness right, but but to make it clear that collegiate athletes are not employees. And and so they're they're first and foremost students. And and so I think the real creative solutions are happening at the campus level. How can you actually get students so that they're engaging, physically distancing, they're being socially responsible and um, aren't going to large lecture halls. So those are out, and 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 then you you take that microcosm of those students, and and how do you do that properly in an athletics environment? And honestly, the creative solutions there are more about how you're going to time when every athlete comes in, makes their appointment, and 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 I, I think the the key is that um, the specificity to sanitizing has to be just so markedly enhanced, and everyone has to be on board for that. What, um, I mean, I don't know if this is a little far afield, but I, I keep thinking about the mental health of athletes. And this is, uh, in a lot of times, this is a form of self-identity. Sometimes there are professional ambitions and they've suddenly been thwarted. What, um, what, what are your thoughts, especially with, with younger athletes about the mental health aspect of this? Well, I think it's huge. So, so we actually, um, just this morning, I was reviewing the results of a, uh, a survey we did with our student athletes, um, and we specifically looked at mental health. And um, so we're just in the process of analyzing that, and then we're actually doing a more detailed study that's going to take place over the next year and a half that's looking at mental health vis-a-vis COVID-19 and so forth. Um, but it, it's huge. So what, what's really, uh, I, I think, kind of cool is that the, uh, the, the National Student Athlete Advisory Committee uh, members of, of the NCAA, and so they're really the legitimate representation of student athletes, they made mental health their priority and, and rolled out these, these best practices. And, and, and what you may not have gotten wind of this, but the International Olympic Committee got, saw these best practices. So they held their first ever consensus meeting on mental health and elite athletes use the NCAA best practices as a foundation. And I was actually co-chair of that meeting. And the International Olympic Committee has made mental health their priority. And, uh, and I think you're going to see that really manifest in, in amazing ways. And what's going to be released, I'm pretty sure around June or July, is the first ever screening tool for um, uh, elite mental health, or uh, the first ever screening tool for uh, athletes that was developed by the IOC. And we're actually going to then be piloting that and, and, and studying, you know, the effects of that vis-a-vis COVID-19 as well. So we're really taking mental health seriously. The early feedback we've gotten is that the athletes have been suffering more with mental health and physical health issues. And I, I think the point you brought up is, is perhaps the most important one. And that's, you know, how do you define yourself? You know, if you define yourself as an athlete and, and, and that's taken away from you and, and the data we have, which is very interesting. You know, the, the highest risk point for developing mental health symptoms and disorders in, in athletes is, the, is a sudden transition out of sport. So injury, illness, getting cut. Well, here's a sudden transition out of sport that, you know, came from the universe. And, and you know, so where are you? Who are you with the anxiety that goes with that? So uh, we're, we're really plugged into that and, and um, have, have actually, that's been a major part of our communication with athletes, coaches, and everyone else to, to pay attention to the mental health issues. And then, um, and we also developed a network of, of providers who, uh, who give telemental health um, across the country and made that available to our athletes. I mean, it strikes me too, and there's no, there's no obvious re-entry point. It's not, hey, you, you tore your ACL, and if you rehab here six weeks, you should be on the treadmill. I mean, it's who the hell knows when careers are going to resume. Yeah, you, you, you know, so athletes on one hand, they're, they're used to um, uncertainty. Uh, you, you know, the uncertainty if they're going to win or lose, if the events is going to get canceled because of rain or this or that. But this is, <laughs> this is a whole other level of uncertainty, and I think, you know, uh, that's – that's a bit more difficult. We've been trying to get the athletes, you, you know, to focus just on one day and one week at a time, and that you're 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 
you're preparing for the entry point at any point in time. And, and that's sort of, you know, I think you have to kind of model it that way for your sanity. Let's, let's geek out on tennis for a little bit. You've been the, uh, you've, you've been the chief medical officer at the, at the U.S. Open for, I think, I think it's the early 90s, right? Yeah, so for 16 years. So from 92 to, jeez, uh, um, I think it was 2016, 18, something like that. Yeah. So you've been, uh, so what, um, I mean, let's, let's frame this positively. What's it going to take for there to be a 2020 U.S. Open in some capacity? Yeah, and I take that back. It wasn't 2016. It was before then. So I've been at the NCAA. So, so it's since, since 2008, and then I was, and yeah. then I was uh, the chief medical officer of the USTA part time for four years before I transitioned to the NCAA. I think to do a U.S. Open, um, there are a few things that have to happen. One is New York has to be in phase three. So the the one good thing is that Gover Governor Cuomo has been really pretty strict about what the reentry points are going to be. And, and I think because of that, it makes it more likely that there's not going to be um, a massive resurgence because of opening up too soon. Yeah. It could be because of the virus, but um, from other points of view. But, but so I think that is, is, is really helpful. Um, I don't know if you saw yesterday, Governor Cuomo said that as of Friday, um, tennis facilities, yeah, you uh, you know, with, with drive-in drive movie theaters and tennis. I loved it. To, to play singles. Um, so I think you'd have to be in phase three. We, you, you have to have a great working relationship with the governor, the mayor. Um, and, and then you, you have to really be able to define that inner bubble. There has to be a commitment by players to stay with that. So, you know, that may mean they would have to come two weeks beforehand which I don't think they would mind because, you know, that would allow them to really train and you're going to have to control their, their movements. There's going to have to be a, a commitment on that. So, you know, it doesn't mean that they're staying in the middle of Manhattan and, 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 and hanging out and, and it would require very regular testing. You know, I think to pull something off like this, it, it may well require daily testing um, and of the inner circle. Um, and, and then you would have to have a, a very strict protocol if someone all of a sudden tests positive, but the advantage of bringing people in two weeks ahead of time, and if you're really restricting their movements, or they're, they're sort of like in a, a you know, a, a, a tournament in post-quarantine, if you will, an agreement, um, then the, the, the likelihood of someone testing positive is, 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 is really lessened. So it would take a strict adherence like that, and then building out the outer bubble, making certain everything there is, 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 is done correctly. If it's a no fan event, you can imagine using the vast grounds of, 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 of the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center and, and setting it up in such a way that you can really assure sort of physical distancing. Then you come to the ball. Um, and, you, you know, there's been so much speculation about does the virus particle live on a ball? And, and we don't have the study and we, and we decided even if we had the study, you know, how valid is it going to be? So there are ways that you can think about the, the, the ball sharing. And, and I, I, you know, if we know that the players have tested negative, well, then there can be a sharing of the ball. You know, for general people playing, like if I'm playing with someone, I don't know if they're positive or not, but we're socially distancing. You can imagine a scenario where I'm only going to use my balls my opponent or partner is only going to be using, you know, uh, their balls. And, you know, when you give them to someone else, you don't pick them up with your hand. You just use your, your foot and racket and hit it over. So, but I think if we're testing before every match, we know people are negative. I, I think we can work the ball things out, but I, I think you have to be careful about ball kids and what's their role going to be, if any. Um, so it's, it's, it's getting into there. You have to really, really get into some pretty granular detail. We're saying one one casualty of this already is the ball kids handling the towel that that may uh, that may have died forever. But um, what what I I had seen some speculation, but again, and you, this must drive you crazy. How many instant experts there are that sort of pop pop up on ESPN without any sort of uh, data or training? But I I did hear that there was this was utter, utter speculation that the virus could attach to the surface area of a ball, and and the football is a hundred times bigger than a golf ball, and is there any data you've seen that would suggest that to be the case? 
Yeah, so there, there, there have, yeah, there, there is even an article in the New England Journal of Medicine that suggested the virus particle could live. And, and, and so certainly, and, and, and that's why even for our recommendations in phase one and two, we say if you have a basketball or football, you shouldn't be sharing it. Until we really get more, more certain about where, where we are with all of this. And, and tennis has just sort of fallen in between the cracks. And, and so I think the working assumption is that it potentially could be infectious and so let's let that be the working assumption and, and respect that it is uh it's it's mid-may so we've got a ways to go even before a decision has to be made i mean are, are you hopeful i mean i i was telling someone i said i i haven't seen this kind of creative thinking at, at the usta in decades I mean, it's great that people are at least thinking about how we can pull this off and thinking outside the box um are you optimistic this could happen in some way yeah, so I'm, I'm, you know, uh, cautiously optimistic. It's, it's sort of a, you know, you look at our USGA president, uh, Patrick Galbraith. He's a former professional player. Actually, he's former number one in the world in doubles. Um, so he really gets tennis at the inside. It's interesting, we have a new CEO who used to be president of Wilson, Mike Dowles, and, and he's just such a, uh, a communicator, and, and he's brought the entire tennis industry together in a way I haven't seen in a very long time. So it's not about the USTA, it's not about PTR, it's about tennis. And, um, and I think, you, you know, those two being at, at the helm have sort of generated a whole new level of creative thinking at, at, at the USTA. And then they put together their own advisory panel. You know, the MCA has theirs, USTA has theirs. And, and we meet weekly, sometimes more. And, um, you know, we've, we've been, going through an awful lot of what-if scenarios um, and, and uh, to, to try to pull this off. And, and it's basically all hint on deck. Um, you know, there was different kinds of speculation. Well, you know, maybe we'll do the U.S. Open at a different time of the year, but that's enormously complicated to do, especially with your TV partners, you know, hold it in some other city. You know, that gets even more complicated. So, you know, the working assumption now is look at the week before and after Labor Day. Let's build out a no-fan scenario. If it can go beyond that, that's just uh, an added plus. So, um, yeah, it's been, it's been exciting to, to be on the inside of it. You know, it's just, it's just unfortunate, not just for tennis, for all sports, because they've been hit so hard. And, you know, a lot of tennis clubs uh, are, are really, really struggling. But, um, you know, I, I, in particular, I mean, I know I'm, I, I'm wearing my tennis hat now when saying this, um, as the NCAA has a, a, a lot of sports, but, you know, you even look at the unique health benefits of tennis and, and, you know, there are two major studies, you know, one that looked at over 50,000 people and tennis compared to every other physical activity, um, running, jogging, swimming, cycling, it, it, it improves long-term health and, and, and protects you from cardiovascular disease more than any other sport. And so even bringing the U.S. Open back, which, you know, it's the largest uh, annual sporting event in the world, it's sort of two levels of, of, of hope. One is, oh yeah, great sporting event, but also, you know, it's a pretty cool sport. Right. Um, let me ask you one more question. How has, you, you were a college athlete, you've, you've been in sports uh, as a sports doctor for, for decades. How has this um, made you reassess sports? I mean, what, what, what have you learned from this? So I think that um, sport is, first and foremost, has to always be considered a public health matter. Um, and so we can look at, you know, uh, I think someone who really had a phenomenal idea of sport was Nelson Mandela. And he said that you can uh, judge a society by how it treats sport. And, and you know, I was being the, the first chief medical officer of the NCA, and it was, was sort of like a you know, an open slate. I mean, what, what, what do we do? And, and once you look at through the lens of, of, of public health and, and how can we shape sport from, from that perspective? And, and, and so, you know, early on it was, it was concussion. It's still concussion, right? I mean, that's the great metaphor for how we can get sport right or, or not get sport right. And, and if you, if you can't really address that, well, then we're doing something wrong. So, you know, we did this study, we are doing this, uh, 25 plus year study with the Department of Defense and, and really trying to understand, you know, what is concussion? What is repetitive head impact exposure? And you take that and now we move to this pandemic, which is also a, a, a real threat. But, but can sports sort of be the great model of, of, of 
you know, a good in public health. And so I think that drives me more than anything. And, and what's made me really so grateful is the NCA has just been 100% supportive of that. I remember presenting some concussion data to the Board of Governors, the most powerful committee of the NCA, and Bud Peterson, the president of Georgia Tech, and, and he was the chair of, of, of the Board of Governors at the time. I'll always remember he said, wherever this data takes us, that's where the NCA has to go. And so if we can be thinking that way, then I, I think we're doing something good for society. There's a, there's a broader a broader lesson in there. Um, well, this this is great. I, I don't know how big these bubbles uh, are going to be, but uh, if t TV and media are included, uh, look forward to seeing you at the 2020 U.S. Open. Yeah, on the grounds with uh, with state and local governments blessing and perhaps fans and perhaps no fans, but uh, yeah. with, with any luck. And it, it sounds like, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I mean, it, it sounds like you, you guardedly optimistic will pull this off. Yeah, I would say uh, that's a good qualifier for my optimism. <laughs> we'll take it. Uh, yeah. These days, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take guarded optimism. Um, I appreciate it. This is great. I really yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Dan. No, I appreciate it, too. You take care. Thanks. Right, you as well. Thanks, Brian. All right. Thanks to Dr. Brian Hainline for uh, being our guest this week. That was uh, that was really interesting. A lot of uh, a lot of sort of thought exercises, a lot of hypotheticals, and a lot of science, which we don't always get, uh, especially in the sports context. Um, so I was I was happy to do that. Thanks to him. Thanks as always to uh, Jamie Lasanti, our trusty producer, who uh, is a state away in New Jersey. Uh, Jamie, may I bring you in? You may. May I bring you in via Zoom? Yes, please make sure your microphones are connected. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's uh, boy, I tell you, the uh, we we can get into this later. A, a lot is being reconsidered in the last ninety days, and I think one of them is sort of professional communications and contact. Um, we we all miss office buildings and, by extension, commercial real estate. But I wonder if we will ever go back to sitting across from each other in the podcast studio. Um, I'm sure, we used to worry about levels on a big, beautiful board with all these buttons that I had to press every single day. And now we send Zoom links and talk to our computers. So it's a different world. No, and, and I think it's, it's relevant to uh, our discussion here. I mean, I think a lot of workplaces are really reassessing themselves by, you know, at some level by necessity, but also as, as a business exercise. Sports certainly are one of them. What is essential? What is not? What can we live without? But uh, boy, I, don't, I mean, I don't know if you saw last night, Twitter, Twitter releases statements saying that employees from now on had the option of never going back to an office. Um, I wonder how far that extends because uh, right, right now the idea of going to, you know, you and I work in an office with thousands of other people after getting there on public transportation, that, um, that seems rather quaint and, and unwise at the same time. But You can work from home forever. That's a, that's quite the statement. And yeah, I, I don't see, you know, especially uh, here in New Jersey, New York City, um, in this area, given the state of everything, it's, it's going to be really tough. And that, you know, is very close related to what, a lot of what you talked about with Dr. Hainline about the U.S. Open and how that is going to be staged here in New York, in New York City. Um, and he did suggest that the players might have to adhere to a two-week quarantine in New York and, and restrict their movement. So that meant, you know, not coming to New York City and going to out to dinner and going shopping and hanging out. That means quarantining and staying home. And I, I don't know. Do you think the players could, could handle that? Would they, would, they, would they adhere to that? Yeah, I, I think it depends, uh, depends what players you asked and they, it's a player who's ranked number 60 and if he loses in the first round if she loses in the first round there's a $50,000 check after six months of inactivity yeah I'll stay in a ho hotel room in Manhattan and quarantine for two weeks if you're a top-ranked player if you're you know let's pick pick the usual cast of characters I mean is Roger Federer going to play the U.S. Open if part of that entails a two-week quarantine in New York I don't know and I mean again I think all social norms are off in all fields 
but I think tennis is uh, in, in a very sort of precarious situation here. I, I sort of left that call thinking that if we really recalibrate what we expect a Grand Slam tournament to look like, a major tournament to look like, this 2020 U.S. Open, under very different circumstances than what we're accustomed to, it could really happen. Um, whether Serena Williams will be playing is another matter. Whether it will be awkward to watch late round matches of majors with nobody in the stands will be awkward is another matter. But if we're talking strictly about, you know, not, not unlike, I don't know if you saw the UFC card, if we're talking strictly about having a sporting event where people at home can watch professional tennis, it sounds like that's not an impossibility. So uh, I, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know if that was your takeaway as well. I don't know how you feel about a U.S. Open where the final and uh, the, the prestige and the, you know, you think about the role of the fan and the crowd in a big tennis match, I would say it borders on a central, but, but maybe not. What, what do you think, Jamie? Well, certainly the, the fans, and we talked a bit about this at the very beginning, the fans are such an integral part of any sport, but I believe, especially in tennis, even though they're not constantly cheering the whole time, I just think that entire atmosphere and experience really does uh, play into a match. We talk about it all the time, as you say, especially in the late rounds of majors. I left with a very interesting perspective on all of this after, after hearing him discuss it. The one thing that was, I guess, promising was that as you said, there's an actual option for this to occur. I think um, there's been a lot of people sort of speculating and he really laid out the plans to say, this is what needs to happen. There needs to be regular testing on a daily basis and this inner circle uh, must be adhered to. And then maybe we could talk about fans. But I think the what I took away from that was that even getting to that point where we have that inner circle down I think is going to be a bit of a stretch. And I also just think it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, you talk about tennis in some ways in the terms of, of golf being one of the easiest sports to come back. I mean, even Cuomo on one of his daily you know, conferences says that an outdoor low risk activity like tennis is, is, you know, good to go as of May 15th, but on the flip side, the professional, side of tennis and you know a tournament like the u.s open as grand and as you know expansive as that is it's a completely different beast and right. so i i am not sure that they can figure out all of the resources needed to pull this off in such a short time but the fact that they're still trying is very interesting i think the other point that i thought of is that if the u.s open is a go what does that mean for everything following, you know, all the, all the fall tennis tournaments, everything else, because they're going to use the U S open as a uh, example for, for all these smaller tournaments. And I think that's where we run into an issue. The U S open and the USTA might have the resources in order to get this all done, but does a, does a Cincinnati have that, you know um, it's, it's going to be difficult. Um, I think, but I'm hopeful maybe that, they can get it done. I still think the question of what happens when people do get sick, what happens if there are one or two or three or more positive tests? Right. Um, you know, I mean, there, there was a positive test during, uh, during the pre-fight testing for this UFC card that was held last Saturday in Florida. And the fight was canceled involving that fighter, but the, the show went on and sort of it, it almost became a non-issue. I mean, I think when, when you say resources, what we really mean is television money. And I think, you know, we, we always knew in the back of our mind just how powerful a force TV is, but I think this uh, is another indication. And if ESPN said, nah, you know what, let's come back in 2021, not interested, we're not having this discussion. If ESPN is saying, we paid 80 plus million dollars a year for this, and who knows what's happening with football, We've seen what happens when there's anything resembling live sports. We've got to make this happen. I, I think we ought not to discount the role that TV money and ESPN in particular is, is playing in this. I mean, there were, there were stories that they looked into holding the event later in the year in Indian Wells, the 2020 U.S. Open. That, of course, presupposes that uh, 
the, the venue there and Larry Ellison and, and the city of Indian Wells would be willing to accommodate this. But right. what I was told was ESPN didn't have any interest in that because of the possible conflict with football. And immediately that was scuttled. So I do think that when we talk about resources, I mean, look, ESPN is playing $80 million plus. I mean, that deal was made in another time. That No way does that U.S. Open fetch that kind of price if that deal were being negotiated today. But look at the prize money. You know what? I'll look it up real quick because I don't have it offhand. The 2020 U.S. Open prize money, I'm guessing, is about $60 million. Does that sound about right? So so ESPN alone, if ESPN is going to broadcast this event and doesn't, you know, negotiate a reduction. ESPN alone is going to more than cover your prize money. You have other media deals as well. You'll probably have a little bit of sponsorship, maybe some of the the signage on the court. You're obviously not going to have the ticket revenue and the suites and the concessions. I mean, it's going to be, you know, dramatically different revenues than in previous years, but you'll still make a profit. So I think the, the thinking is sort of, listen, we, we want to do this for the sake of tennis. We want to do this for the sake of our brand. We're probably not going to do this at a loss, but if ESPN is still cutting a check and we're, you know, we're, we're not paying, you're losing a lot of revenue, but you're also losing a lot of expenses. You've got to think the security is going to go way down. You don't have to pay ushers. I mean, there's, there's you know, a lot of costs that are going to come out. If we can still stage this event without fans, make a little money, keep our prestige, keep our broadcast partner happy. Why not give this a try? And I think, I mean, I was told by someone that the big, Right now, there is enough of a plan for the U.S. Open and enough confidence that players are willing to come and come early and be tested every day and do the temperature testing. The, the, big, uh, the big hinge point is whether this gets approval of local, state, and to a lesser extent, federal government. And right. if Governor Cuomo says, God bless you, it's about time we got back and it looks like precautions are going to be uh, adhered to, go run your tournament. We've got a real shot of a 2020 U.S. Open with no fans. So that's 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 my intel, Jamie. I want to agree with you. I just see so many questions. I mean, if they were to quarantine for 14 days, where and when are they practicing? And and how are you getting these people, you know, to those places to practice? And I think the other thing that we've talked about was the, you know, the international players. Are other countries going to allow their citizens to travel? Um, maybe that travel is going to only be extended to, you know, the neighboring countries or just short distances, things like that. Are they willing to let people get on a plane? And, you know, again, I think the word resources comes up because here now you're talking about someone who maybe has to hop on a United flight or a Delta flight and just ride coach versus someone who can has a little bit more resources to get themselves where they need to be without being in that situation. So I just worry that, and you know, something is better than nothing, but I do worry that if this were to happen, the level of competition, the level of prestige a little bit is, is going to be diminished just because of the amount of players and the type of competition that will likely arrive that you know, as compared to this just being a regular year in regular circumstances. The, the better than nothing open. Yeah. <laughs> all this. Um, did you, uh, related to that, did, did you catch the, the Florida exhibition that aired on Tennis Channel, the UTR exhibition? Are you, uh, have you been watching any of these other unsanctioned events? I haven't. I wanted to ask you about it um, just because I sort of, sort of felt like the news kind of just flew by that there was, you know, tennis was coming back, but you know, what, what was it? um, What was it truly? Can you, can you explain to us and, and was, was it successful? I I think on balance, absolutely. Um, And this is, you know, there will be another one featuring women next week, include, you know, including Amanda Anasimova and uh, you know, Ali risk. I mean, this is legitimate, uh, Legitimate top tennis players. There was a four-man exhibition last weekend at a private property in Florida. Uh, Tommy Paul, Riley Opelka, uh, Kekmanovic, and, and Hubert Herkosh. So, you know, top 60 players, not better than all Djokovic and team, but, you know, credible players. And it was at a private residence. And for I, I just I, – I wrote about this. I said uh, a few months ago for a 60 Minutes piece, I went on a driverless truck the driverless semi in, in Arizona. And for the first 
five minutes, it was like an amusement park ride. And it was like, I can't believe there's no hand on the steering wheel or foot on the gas pedal. And I'm going 65 miles an hour on the interstate. And after about five minutes, I'm like, I don't know, it feels like I'm in a truck, no big deal. And I sort of had the exact same sensations watching these matches that, yeah, it was a little weird. It seemed like I was watching a, a practice session and there were no fans and there were no ball kids and there were no you know umpires around the court. There were no linesmen around the court. And after a few minutes, I felt like I was watching pro tennis. And would it have been preferable if there were fans in the stands? I'm not sure who you pump your fist to when you're playing uh, in a private court. But um, again, be better than nothing. It sure beat the alternative. It's, after a few minutes, I felt like I was watching uh, a normal match on court seven from Cincinnati, which I've done plenty of times. So there will be more of these popping up. There's another UTR pro match coming uh, with, with Ali Risk, Anna Samova, Danielle Collins, and um, I think Tamiana and I Isla Tamjanovic. Um, I'm hearing about, I don't know if I'm allowed to, uh, I, I think there's another women's event in the United States that's being uh, considered. We're going to have, uh, there's a Czech event with Czech players. There's going to be obviously an event at, at the Mortoglu Academy. Apparently British players are going to play during the week of Wimbledon. I mean, I think these are going to become the norm, these unsanctioned sort of mini events, which give fans a chance to watch some tennis. It's a broadcast opportunity. There's some infrastructure here to watch the streaming. And above all, it's a chance for players to play and make a little bit of money. Again, I don't think better Nadal and Serena Williams are going to be entering these, but I'll watch Ali Risk play Anna Samova any day of the week. So I, I think on balance, this is, a, this is a positive. It would be good if the, the publicity, I mean, you, you said you barely heard about it and I've heard that as well. I mean, it would be, a little bit more uh, muscle in the publicity department would probably help. But on balance, I think this is uh, I think this is a good thing. And I think until these tours are ready to resume in earnest, we're going to see more and more of this. For sure. And yeah, I think another great point you guys made during your conversation was that sports returning, we're not going to return to what we once had. Um, things are going to be different for sure. And I think especially, you know, the first people who take a go at this. Uh, you know, the UFC, of course, tried to do what they could and they had the testing. And, and I know you mentioned that a fighter tested positive, I guess, the, a day before the event. If that happens, um, you know, in a tennis situation, I guess the one thing we can say is that the sport is uh, pretty used to uh, day before tournaments start injury withdrawals or, you know, retirements due to illness or things like that so at least it's something that tennis is accustomed to in a way and we'll have those hopefully have those lucky losers lined up but who knows if uh, how far it'll go down the line in terms of uh quarantining the the lucky losers or testing the lucky losers yeah and I've, you know and it's uh if i'm in the locker room or in the even you know in the, in the players lounge and i hear a player pulled out because she had a, a sore hamstring it's one thing if i find out a colleague pulled out because of a positive COVID test. It's affects me in a different way, but no, I mean, I, I think there's, this is sort of a, there's a, there's a think piece. It's not a book to be written here, but I think the, the role of sports in this whole pandemic is, is really interesting to me. And we usually think of sports as having, like, like Dr. Hanline said, I mean, it has this real ability to bind us. It's this source, it's, it's diversion, it's, it's unification. There's life lessons. I mean, all of these kind of mushy ideas about why we love sports and all of those in a lot of ways are under attack. I mean, somebody's saying if somebody said there's a, there's a pandemic ripping through the world, Hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get 700,000 fans in a confined area. We're going to have athletes come in from all over the world and share one locker room. I mean, you could, you could scarcely script a less conducive scenario than the Olympics or the U.S. Open or the Super Bowl. I mean, sports are not only not sort of being able to be played, they are almost singularly ill-suited for this pandemic. So I, I think we're all sort of rethinking not just how we're going to stage sports, but also what sports mean in, in the social fabric and how we can keep that when, obviously, like you say, Jamie, I mean, the, the idea of 700,000 people going to one site that just so happens to be ground zero for this whole global pandemic in Queens, New York, but how hundreds of thousands of fans going to one site to watch athletes who've flown in from all over the world and are now sharing a locker room. 
how are we going to be able, I mean, that's, that's clearly going to be precluded for years, but how are we going to be able to enjoy sports and how are we going to be able to alter sports and reassess sports and sort of keep the goodness while recognizing that there's a lot about sports that are really inconsistent with uh, best practices in the age of COVID. In terms of coming back, I mean, the UFC announced that they would hold this fight, um, I guess, a, a pretty long time ago. They did give the players the opportunity to obviously train and get ready, um, and they knew that they were on deck for this past weekend. How long do you think the U.S. Open will give players to notify? How soon are we going to see a decision? Yeah, I mean, there, there is an early June date that's been circulated of, look, we're going to make the call by then. Um, I mean, I do think a lot of these players, I, I don't think players are sitting at home, uh, you know, guzzling beer and, and on Twitch. I mean, you know, I just saw a video. Nick Curios is out practicing in Canberra. If Nick Curios is practicing looking reasonably fit. You can be sure that, uh, you know, Dominic Team and, and Zverev are as well. Um, you know, if, if anything, UFC is one of the harder sports where you've got to actually – You've got to wait, and uh, you know you really have to be in, in literally in, in fighting shape. I think if they turn the switch today, I mean, if they said right now at noon we're going to have a tournament tomorrow, I think the majority of players would would be ready at least physically. I mean, I, I think we're, and one thing we, I was glad Dr. Hainline addressed this. I mean, I think one area that's been a little shortchanged is just the mental health component to all of this. And you're an elite athlete, and you're competing is what you do. I mean, that is a, it's a, it's a form of self-assessment. It's a form of self-identity. All of a sudden you're no longer competing. I, I mean, Nadal has been very uh, outspoken about this, essentially in so many words saying like, I'm, I'm just not, and this is Nadal of all people saying, I'm not necessarily in the state of mind to be competing. Mm -hmm. But I think from a physical standpoint, these play, and, and I thought, you know, the level of play at that exhibition I referenced in Florida, the four man exhibition with uh, Opelka, Paul, and I mean, I, to me was indistinguishable from the level of play at, you know, if, if this were the, if you told me this was the first round of Australia, I would have said, yeah, that's about right. So I, I think the, the one good thing, I think, I think players as muscle memory, I think the players will come back without too much of a, a perceptible difference, but emotionally, whether or not all these players are ready to resume. And like you say, spend two weeks in quarantine before a major is, is not a drill any of them have done before. That's a really interesting point about, about Nadal, you know, it gets me thinking in, in previous tournaments and previous Grand Slams, I think a lot of what we always talk about is that that one it factor, that one thing that is going to separate, you know, player A from player B, especially in the finals. And a lot of times, especially when we talk about the big three, is is their mentality, is how they approach the game. And it's that that mindset that somehow you just see them all of a sudden turn it on or just take it to another level that you you didn't think was there um that's a really interesting perspective you know is someone like Nadal or Federer in that mindset to compete in that way you know I think it's one thing to say yeah we can have you know this this match or this tournament that looks like a the first round of Australia but once you get to the later rounds, how, how strong is that competition going to be? You know, is that going to be good tennis? Is that, or do, and do we care? Um, and how much does that affect the, you know, the winner of that year, you know, to say, well, you are, are people going to say, well, you didn't compete against the best or you didn't compete against, you know, everyone that could have been there because maybe some people couldn't or decided not to, not to come. So I was talking to one player who said, uh, I was talking to a player, uh, I guess it was last, I don't know, the days all run together, by the way. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, but it must have been last week, who essentially said they, they wanted to pe just to get back in to sort of the swing of competition and that people don't realize that that's a muscle too. And it wasn't about whether I can make a few thousand bucks playing in some exhibition. It's about sort of getting back in the swing of competing and testing myself and being in a situation where it's, it's, you know, four all 30 all. And it's something that, uh, you know, we, we don't necessarily have statistics for it. It's something that doesn't, isn't necessarily manifest when we watch tennis on TV, but getting in this competition mindset is really part of the job and players haven't had a chance to do that since February. And if playing in a backyard tournament, I mean, there was, there was an event uh, Tracy Austin mentioned in Southern California um, 
Sam Query is going to be on it. I believe Taylor Fritz, her son, uh, her son Brandon, um, Svita. I'm, I'm blanking, but it's you know a six man competition in a backyard. But you're still going to be playing world class practitioners. You're still going to be facing Sam Query's serve at four all. And for a tennis player, there's there's something to be said for that. So strange times all around. But I think this is uh, you know honestly, Jamie, this is this to me is the equivalent of the restaurant that's now doing takeout. You know, we're, we're all improvising and it would be great if that restaurant were doing full business and had table service and we were all having leisurely meals, but takeout's better than nothing. So that's, uh, I, I sort of see tennis in very much the same place. They're better than nothing open. <laughs> um, how's that for a slogan? All right. That will, you know, usually, uh, usually we wrap up our podcast because, you know, Grant, Grant Wall is, is giving us looks or uh, the NFL guys are coming in. Now we are running out of Zoom time. So uh, that will do it for this week. Thanks. Always a pleasure chatting, Jamie. Always a pleasure. I hope we get some, some news soon, some good news in the tennis world on, on what's coming. Um, from, uh, from your mouth to the USTA's ears. Um, and, and, of course, Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio. All right. This is the, uh, this is the Better Than Nothing Tennis Podcast. Um, that will do it for this week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Jamie. Um, get this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review. Feel free to continue sending guest suggestions. And uh, we'll do it again next week. Mm-hmm.